Hey, welcome to the 64th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Michael Lewis, but not that Michael Lewis. The guy about to appear on my show didn't write Moneyball, he didn't write The Blind Side. Nope. He was, from 1997 to 2011, a journeyman newspaper and magazine writer. The Wilmington Star News, Slam Magazine, the Glen Falls Post-Star, the Daytona Beach News Journal. And one day, he kind of looked at his life, looked at the future of newspapers, looked at his bank account, and said, eh, I think I've had enough. So today, we're talking about whether it was worth it, whether that move, leaving the field, proved wise. And I'm going to let him tell you about it, as well as some really amazing stories he was locked in a stadium bathroom. He covered a young and kind of crazy Ryan Lochte. Uh, he got mocked for not knowing Shaquille O'Neal's shoe endorsement details. And it's all right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. For those who don't know, I was the, uh, I was my senior year at the University of Delaware. I was a, the editor of the student newspaper, The Review. And this freshman. I'm sorry, the extremely cocky editor. Yes. uh, That's true. This extremely nerdy freshman comes up, and his name is Michael (laughs) Lewis. He's a kid from Long Island, and he really wants to write for the paper. And there had been a rule for years and years freshmen couldn't write for the paper. And I asked to see his clips, and he had clips. But the thing he had that really sort of struck me number one, (laughs) a a denim jean jacket, and number two, dangling from his neck. Probably a silver or gold. I'm guessing gold. New York Jets pendant. Correct. It was gold. It was gold. Yes, it was gold. And the jean jacket. Not only that, it was a faded denim jean jacket. It wasn't even like you know new. It was at least a couple years old. But yes, my look was very, very, very cool back then. Let me tell you, very cool. That's why all the girls followed me on my way up to the newspaper office. Well, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So we'll just uh, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, there was no beauty in that outfit. No, there was no, no, no. So you know. I, I've I've talked with you about having you on before, and originally I was going to do it as an April Fool's episode. But I was going to tell people I had I was having Michael Lewis on, Moneyball Michael Lewis. Do you, I'm curious in the in the course of your journalism career, did you ever get confused for Michael Lewis, Moneyball? Uh, yes, many many times. Not so much in my journalism career. A lot of it happens all the time now on Twitter. Uh, Michael, the Michael, the other Michael Lewis, which is what I almost called my blog uh, when I started it. Um, the other Michael Lewis uh, is not on Twitter. So a lot of times he'll write something for Vanity Fair or Bloomberg or, or one of his books will come out. And I guess someone will search Michael Lewis on Twitter and they'll come up with me. And I feel so terrible sometimes letting them down. Oh, I just read your book. Oh, your article was great. The Department of Energy needs to change and this and this and this. And I say, I'm so glad you're fired up. I'm so glad you liked the article. I'm not that Michael Lewis. And what my standard line to people is, is that he has more money, but I'm better looking, which neither one is actually true. Most of them are actually true, but anyway. Um, no, as far as in my career, yeah, occasionally it's gotten a phone call return. Uh, a baseball player that I was interviewing once, and in, uh, I want to say it was like a college summer league, said to me, like, wait, Michael Lewis, you're the guy from Moneyball? I love that book. And it was before it was a movie or anything. Um, so it's happened from time to time. Um, the best Michael Lewis story, though, is not from that Michael Lewis, but there was a soccer writer uh, longtime soccer writer for the New York Daily News and other places called Michael Lewis. And when he and I were both covering soccer teams, our teams were going to be playing each other. So he decided to write in his column that this was going to be the Michael Lewis Cup. 
and we had a little fun with that. So That's awesome. It does crack me up on Twitter because then I'll get a pity follow from the person who thought I was the other guy, and you know they'll say, "Oh, you're good too," or you know something like that. So, All right. Used to do. Um, Catherine used to date a, my wife. Used to date a uh, a guy, and he went to the University of Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut. And people would say, "Where do you go to college?" And he would say, "Harvard." And they would say, "Harvard." And he would say, "Yes." <laughs> Very similar. Yeah. Excellent, excellent schools, both. Right. Excellent schools. So, both. so you um you got out of Delaware mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety seven, and you bounced around. You went to the Wilmington Star News ninety seven to two thousand, Wilmington, North Carolina, mm-hmm. Slam Magazine, Slam Magazine two thousand two thousand two. Uh, yep. Upstate New York, Glens Falls Post Star, 2002-2005. Uh, Daytona Beats News Journal, 2006 to 2011. Mm-hmm. And from 2011 okay, on... This is your life episode. A little bit. From, from, <laughs> from 2011, 2012 on, you've been a freelancer. And in many ways, I mean, not, not in factually, a stay-at-home dad who's kind of raising his kids. And mm-hmm. I wonder, like, you know, you and I came up in the same program... We definitely shared a passion for journalism, a passion for writing, dreams of being the next whoever, Mike Freeman or Mike Lupica, or I mean, you know, George Vesey, Dave Anderson, whoever you want to pick, you know, but that was, there were these gold standards, working for Sports Illustrated, being Rick Riley, blah, blah, blah. And- Lee Monville. Lee, Lee Monville should be up there. He sure. was one of my first writing heroes. So in 2011, you, you leave the newspaper business um, <clears throat> because the business is starting to crumble. And I kind of wonder, how did you come to the decision to leave it? And and if it did, how much did it hurt you to sort of, in a way, in a way, give up on sort of a dream? Uh, well, I'll answer the second part first. Um, it, hurt, it hurt a lot, but by that time I was 35 years old, 36 years old. Um, I was going through a divorce. Um, and the opportunities that I thought would be there at the News Journal were being eliminated. Um, you know, you go to a newspaper and you start where you start. I started, uh, I was hired to do preps and occasionally helped out on college football. And you look around and you say, oh, there's some good beats at this paper. I can maybe cover University of Florida football or uh, Orlando Magic NBA basketball or Jacksonville Jaguars football or Florida State football. And you know, five or six jobs at the paper at the time I started, Jeff, in 2006 that, you know, those were aspirational jobs. And one by one, slowly, they became eliminated. We suddenly didn't have a Orlando Magic beat anymore. We didn't have a University of Florida football beat anymore. So that was going on at that paper. Um, there was a lot of lots of other stuff going on in the newspaper industry, which you've talked to with other guests about, that a lot of the jobs that I would hope to get I was, were just being eliminated and were not there anymore. So it was very hard to give up on the dream because, like you, I dream was being divorced in Sports Illustrated. Unlike you, I never got there. Um, I had a letter to the editor published once, and I had a quote that I think you used once, and yeah. they said it that I'd given yeah. you. But uh, that's pretty much it as far as my publications uh, in Sports Illustrated. So it was very hard to to give up on that. Um, what was the first part of the question? Well, was there was there a last straw? Like, was there a moment where you're oh, like, "This yeah. is it"? Yeah. Uh, no, there wasn't a last straw. I mean, I would say mostly it was it was a situation where the writing was on the wall. I was 35 years old. Um, I still thought I was good. I still think I'm good, you know. Obviously, yeah. um, I I knew that opportunities that I would that I should have or could have wanted to get, I just wasn't getting. I mean, it got harder and harder to get a job, harder and harder to move to the next paper. Um, and you know, it, it it's rejection is a huge part of our business, and it just became a situation where I just didn't have the the ability or the energy or the effort or, or I don't know what it was. I just didn't have the 
the passion or the desire to just throw myself on a million resumes and, and apply to everything. And I was going through a divorce and I just felt like I was at the end of my rope. I just felt like I had gone as far as I was going to go in newspaper journalism, which was incredibly crushing to me because I always saw myself being at a, a big city, a big city paper, being a columnist in Philadelphia or New York or Chicago or wherever, or being in a magazine like SI or ESPN. And, um, it, it, it was it was difficult, but as far as the last straw, no, it wasn't. It wasn't really a last straw. I'd say going through my divorce probably was definitely an eye opener. I mean, one of the many, many, many things my ex-wife and I fought about was that my career had seemed to stall, and there wasn't a lot of upward mobility. And we both from New York, and the dream was to get back to New York and be in that market. And I wasn't able to get a job. I mean, God, I I practically stalked some of the editors in the newspaper in the New York area. Um, they might have had restraining orders out on me. Um, so it was just a, a culmination of things, and finally, uh, you know, I, I decided I needed to change, and things weren't happening. Uh, my editor had been replaced in Daytona Beach. The great Dave Markowitz had been had been replaced by someone else, and I really wasn't enjoying my time with a, with a new person. And it was just, it was time to get out. And I tried to get into public relations, and uh, turned out they want people who are 21 and willing to work for $27,000 a year. So I wasn't one of those people. Uh, so I ended up coming back to New York and uh, going into teaching and trying to uh, do that for a little while. I didn't really have a passion for it. I didn't really love it that much. My parents were both teachers, and it never really was in my blood. And, um, you know, met a wonderful woman and uh, married her, and we started uh, talking about kids and family, and she has a great career. And so it just became a natural transition that I would be the caretaker and stay at home. And um, let me tell you, as you know, Jeff, you think writing a game story on deadline that goes to overtime and you have 10 minutes left is difficult? Try doing what I did tonight, trying to coax a three-year-old to get into his bath. I mean, that is way, way, way harder. Do you feel like it is a mistake now for someone 18 years old and attending some college and wants to be a journalist? Would you tell them not to do it? No. No, I wouldn't do that. Because I've heard you ask that question to a lot of your other guests, and I, I think most of them have said, no, I wouldn't tell someone not to do it. Because that person might be the next Gary Smith. That person might be the next Tom Janot or, or Wright Thompson or Chris Jones or, you know, whoever. Um, I would never tell anyone not to pursue their dreams because the person with the big dreams is more powerful than the one with the facts, I think. Um, so I would, never, I would never tell someone not to do it. I would tell them, look, I mean, doing it the way you and I did it, sitting in our dorm room or apartment and mailing, you know, 75 packets or 80 packets with clips and, and letters and trimming them. Remember how hard we would try to trim them on the copy machine and make them look good and have them, you know, yeah. have them not have frayed edges and all that and, and walking to the post office and mailing 80 packages of clips to all over the country and that look of satisfaction that you get, feeling of satisfaction you get. That, that, that's like using a payphone. Nobody does it anymore. And it's impossible to get a job that way. I, I tend to get a lot of young journalists listening to this podcast. And I think, I was <laughs> just thinking, when I was, um, when I was at Delaware, my junior year at Delaware, the paper was edited by a guy named Doug Donovan, who you know, and we went to a job fair at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and they shared a building with the Philadelphia Daily News, and... I know where the story is going. <laughs> we, uh, we, had, um, we had a pile of our resumes and a pile of our clips, and we left the job fair, snuck into the office of the Inquirer and the Daily News, went desk to desk, found, looked at the nameplates to find editors, and wrote on a piece of uh, post-it note that this guy, we should give this guy a look. He's really talented and signed it in a, you know, unintelligible signature. And that, you know, but that was kind of the hustle. Like that was the hustle. I know. I know. And it was like, and it felt, it felt like you were doing something 
bold and adventurous and meaningful. Mm. And I do not know if a kid at the University of Delaware writing for the student newspaper, The Review, has that same reason. Why would you even do that? Are you really going to get a job in the Inquirer? I don't know. No, I'll give you. I'll give you. First of all, I love that story because no matter how many times you've told it to me, I still can't believe you actually got away with it and nobody saw <laughs> you doing it. Yeah. But I'll go. I'll go one better. I used to go when Delaware would play big teams. Like we would play. Sometimes Delaware would play. You know, Duke or you know, uh-huh. Indiana or different different games that I got to got to go to. Whatever. And we would always do is we would bring copies of the review and we would put like ten or fifteen copies and we'd leave them in the back to our own articles and we would leave them figuring oh some professor of something will come in and we've got newspaper connections he'll go he'll have to go to the bathroom we'll have to you know do a number two and he'll read my article like wow this Michael Lewis guy from Delaware I, I should look into him I should contact him I should get him some clips or whatever so leave, I used to leave copies of the paper in every bathroom we would go to on the road like that was really going to work <laughs> I, like- I don't know what possessed me to think oh someone's going to be sitting there with gastrointestinal distress and be like oh this guy's really good his, his field hockey article from Tuesday's review in Delaware was really excellent I should keep his clips on file but it's part of the joy. That's part of the joy. And, and yeah. for all, for all yeah. you know, for all you know, you know, dozens of journalism professors have Mike Lewis bylines <laughs> ink stained on their butt che- on their butt cheeks because they ran out of toilet paper. That is certainly. That's a beautiful image. I'm sure that yeah. that's a great mental picture right now. Thank you. As always, you're a wordsmith, Jeff Feldman. You're a wordsmith. Did you? Um, I mean, you worked in a lot of. You worked pred- predominantly at, at small to mid-sized newspapers, and. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look back on my time at the Tennessean, I tend to view it as like this glowing period of blah, blah, blah. And you you know, you always look back 10, 20 years later, sort of with a glow to it all. And I wonder when you look back, Wilmington Star News, 97 to 2000, your first job out of college, uh, you covered yeah. the Wilmington Hammerheads, minor league pro yeah. soccer. Um, you'll never beat the Hammers. You'll never, it's fancy to chant that the whole game. You'll never beat the Hammers. And it was in my brain for years. Was it a fun job? Go on. Uh, oh my God! It was it was fun and challenging. I mean, the the, the job that the, the tone was set when on my job interview, my sports editor, who I shall not name, took me to lunch and drank I think four Bloody Marys within maybe forty minutes. <laughs> and I had a drink with him, and I was like, great. And then I was like, I can't keep up with this guy. I'm going to be under the table by the time the interview is over. Right. Um, he was a legendary drinker, my my former editor and uh, Mike Boas. Um, and he was he was just uh, one of those old time sports editors who could drink and drink and drink and it was great. I mean, I was 21 years old. I was making twenty six thousand dollars a year. I, I, I was writing no joke, Jeff, four hundred to four hundred fifty stories a year, averaging more than an article a day, covering everything from you know Duke Carolina basketball, which was amazing, to you know American Legion baseball in front of nine people in a cow pasture in Duplin County, North Carolina. I mean, it was. It was incredible because I was learning to do everything. I made so many mistakes. I mean, you talk about the mistakes you made at the Tennessean. Uh, I made at least as many, if not more. What's your um, worst? Oh, God. I think the two, two worst things I did off the top of my head were, number one, I called a uh, heavy set cheerleading coach. I was describing her. I called her a full-figured cheerleading oh, coach. Oh, boy. Yeah. And I got a phone call from her husband the next morning, and that didn't go well. But truly the worst thing, and again, this is, this is definitely not a PG-related story, but I wrote a column. They used to have, I don't know how many other states across the country have this, but before um, league, before play, state playoffs, they 
conference basketball tournaments at the end of the season in high school. So instead of, you know, you play your conference teams all year long, but like in college, you would play like the conference. So I wrote a lead. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm actually saying this from my audience. I wrote a lead basically saying conference basketball tournaments are like foreplay in sex. Nobody really wants to do it, but you have to play them to get to the main event. <laughs> and That's awesome. <laughs> See, I thought that was brilliant in my mind, my 22-year-old mind. I thought that was brilliant. Um, what's really scary is that made it through, copy editors. Like, that that was not like something I snuck in the printer of. That made it through. I got a very, very nasty letter the next day from the editor of the whole paper, who made many, many, many mistakes in his time. But this part, he was right. He said, Michael, that is absolutely tasteless and disgusting, and you cannot ever do that again. And I actually thought about arguing with him, because, you know, I was 22, and I was like, come on, this is... And yeah, after about an hour or two, I realized that was horrible. That was absolutely terrible. And actually, I, I thought he was going to make me write an apology column or whatever, but I think he figured, ah, this guy's stupid. He's, he's 22. He's young. He thinks he can do anything. But I was just so convinced that was such a clever, brilliant lead. And I just, wow. I want to make a point here that I think yes. is good. It's funny. People talk about being a young journalist and how you have so much to mm -hmm. learn. And I think a lot of us come up and we're young. And we already, you know, you know how to turn a quick phrase or you know how to do this. And, you know, you have a basic idea how to be a journalist. But I think the thing that really, really comes slowly is judgment. It's just knowing yes. what's appropriate and what's not. Because what's appropriate, if you think about it, you're 22 years old. You're less than a year removed from going to frat parties and like watching your friends vomit in a puddle outside the stone balloon. <laughs> and now you're being, yeah. asked, now you're being yeah. asked to exercise an adult's judgment. And it just doesn't come easily. Well, that's a perfect, a perfect segue to this. Another thing I learned that I'll always remember, I was writing a story about a high school soccer coach named Jackie Blackmore in New Hanover High School. And I was doing a profile of him. It was like a column. I think it was a column. And he pointed out a player and was like, take him. And he mentioned the kid's name. Like, he could be so good if he didn't do this, this, and this. Now, in hindsight, what I should have done is just what most journalists would do is like, take so-and-so Blackmore mentioned pointing to a, a forward on the team and certainly talked about it when he said those derogatory things because it's a high school kid. You know, right. this is a high school soccer player. I would have said, you know, there goes so-and-so, you know, there goes, look, take this kid and, and mention it and talk about vagueness. And I went out and mentioned the kid's name because he said it in the quote. And so the next day, one of the other people at the paper said, you know, Michael, that was a good column, but you're a high school kid. He's not talking about an NBA player making $6 million a year. He's a high school kid. And I felt so bad about it afterwards because I was like, he's right. Like if I'd been 25 or 27 or a little older in my career, I wouldn't have made that mistake and I wouldn't have needlessly hurt that kid's feelings. Great. But Wilmington was, was a blast. I had so much fun. I made great friends. I made so many mistakes, but I had so many great times uh, covering college basketball and hammerhead soccer, getting locked into a stadium once. And wait, wait, wait. I want to say two yeah. things about that. Number one, I actually think you said something that uh, a good number of guests on this show have agreed with, which is you're a lot meaner when you're younger in print. You know what I mean? Like you yes. just don't care 100%. about people's feelings. It's so weird. And then you get older and you're like, oh, maybe because if you do this long enough, people write some things about you, <laughs> you know? And then you're like, oh, that doesn't feel so great. Stupid. It's just needlessly stupid to hurt someone's feelings or to intentionally, I mean, there's no reason to do it most of the time. I mean, unless you're really talking about a despicable bad guy, there's no reason to do it. All right, so you um, you were covering soccer. You're in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you yes you 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 got you got locked in a stadium, and you had to yes. call the team. Well, what is the story of this? Well, let me let me give you background. Okay, so first of all, most sports writers worth their salt, I think, have been locked in a stadium at some point or another. It's happened to me three times. That may be more than others, but anyway. 
So this was the first time it happened. So I'm covering a Wilmington Hammerheads Myrtle Beach Sea Dog soccer game. Uh, you know the rivalry between the Sea Dogs and the Hammerheads, Jeff. I don't have to tell you. You don't have to tell intent. me. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to tell you. Um, and just by sure, sheer chance, I didn't know I would need this information later on. But during the game in the press box, one of the front office people for Myrtle Beach was saying, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing this great party at Hard Rock Cafe after the game or whatever. All the players, everybody's going to go there. So I didn't even realize I had retained that information at the time. So the game's over, go down to the field, interview the players, blah, 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 come back upstairs to write my story. And 99% of the time, someone from the team knows you're there or knows you're going to be there. You're still going to be writing the press box. Everybody goes, because, you know, sports writers are always the last to leave because we're writing our stories, we're putting it together, we're rewriting, you know, the fans and everybody else leaves. So I was 99% sure that they knew I was still there. Well, turns out I'm doing my story. All the lights keep going out in the stadium, and I try and get out, and there's wrought iron metal gates, like completely blocking any way I go. So I try and get up and go to another exit. Nope, all gone. I go around the entire stadium, there's not one gate open, all the lights are up. Now, thank God, cell phones were at least beginning to be a little more uh, prominent. This is like 1998. So I'm thinking, holy, holy shit, what do I do? I'm locked inside the stadium. I'm gonna have to sleep here tonight. So I remember in the back of my head, wait, didn't they say they're going to Hard Rock Cafe? So, you know, I wasn't Googling. There wasn't any of that really yet. So I called information and I said, can you give me the number for the Hard Rock Cafe in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? And they were like, oh, I think there were three. So the first two I called, I was screaming, can you tell me, is there anyone from the Myrtle Beach Sea Dogs there? And I don't even know if they hung up on me or, or heard what I said, but finally I got the third one and I'm screaming because it's a loud restaurant. You know, can you, finally they get someone on the phone. The guy's like, what? You're where? You're trapped where? <laughs> So I finally get through to him that I was trapped, and uh, and they came out 20, 25 minutes later, and they were laughing hysterically, and they uh, and somebody unlocked me. Now I realized what I should have just done was call the police, but I did that later in my career, and the police officer couldn't stop laughing enough to help me get over the fence to the stadium. That was in Daytona Beach, so I feel like this time this was the right choice. But um, yeah, getting locked in the stadium was a lot of fun because you really feel like you may never ever get out as a star, especially at nighttime. It's dark. Uh, it was a big stadium, but it was pretty dark. I love the idea of like, they're at the Hard Rock. Hey, Murray, get a load of this. You know that douchebag reporter? He's locked in the from stadium. The other, not even from our own paper, from the visiting paper, from the Wilmington paper, who's down here visiting, who drove an hour and a half to the game. He's right. locked in our stadium. Should we just leave him there? Yeah, screw him, leave him there. Let him yeah. sleep there overnight. We hate Wilmington, you know. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman on behalf of 503 Sports, and I'm here with Grandma Sandy, who grew up in the days when Herbert Hoover was present and precocious Shirley Temple owned the picture shows. So, Grandma Sandy, are you excited for my book about the USFL? It's coming out in a few weeks. When I was a girl, Otto Graham slugged the pigskin. What? My father took me to the polo grounds, and I still remember the smell of pork rinds, fish sauce, and watching Sid Luckman do the jig. Boy, he was a killer diller. Uh, I don't really know what that means. What is this about again? 503 Sports. They sponsor this podcast. It's my favorite brand. They sell all sorts of throwback jerseys and sports memorabilia, from the USFL to the XFL to the World League, minor league baseball, minor league hockey. Ah, when I was a girl, jerseys cost a nickel. Uh, that's nice. And okay, the stuff at 503 Sports doesn't cost a nickel, but it's all reasonably priced and handcrafted. So be like Grandma Sandy, dance at Charleston, and visit 503sports.com on your smartphone or computer. What's a computer? You, uh, as I mentioned briefly, you went to S Slam Magazine 
in 2000. Yeah. And this was right around the, the height of Slam Magazine, when Slam was kind of a powerhouse and, you know, hip-hop meets sports. Yeah. And, and yeah. Our, uh, our mutual blue hen, our fellow blue hen, Russ Bankson, was the editor of Slam Magazine. Yeah. And I took that job upon your advice, by the way. I want to remind yeah. you, but upon your advice. <laughs> Wait, so I'm really interested because sometimes, sometimes things are just bad fits, and I feel like I should yeah. have known this one because because Slam at the time was all about cool, and even if you weren't cool, coming off as cool and being one with the players, and yo, what's up? And oh, I talked to Steph yesterday, and blah 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 blah. That you were so not that guy. <laughs> How bad was it? Uh, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. I um, look. I, I, I was joking. I mean, you you advised me that this job would be a good idea, but of course, I I was going to take it. I was I was in Wilmington for three years. I wasn't really getting more and more opportunities that I wanted. I was doing great with some of the college basketball stuff I was getting to do, but that was a very small slice of what I was getting to do. And I was desperate to get back to New York, and I got back to New York, and it was by far the worst career decision I ever made. Um, it was just like you said. It was just a bad fit. I mean, I was newspaper, journalism, AP style book, drunken white guy, and that was absolutely not the vibe. I mean, the first week when I was told, one of the jobs I had was to edit the trash talk section, which was the kids who write letters in, and I was told by one of the editors to leave the typos and the spelling errors in the, in the copy. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, 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 leave it in the copy. Like, leave the mistakes in there. We gotta keep it real, and this is really how the kids talk. I'm like, but this is gonna be published, right? This is not like a version of editing. No, no, this is gonna be published. No, 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 you need to leave the mistakes in there. So I knew that was probably not the best fit for me. Um, but it was just it was just all bad for a long time. Like you said, I was not hip and cool. I didn't know the lingo, you know. I remember, like, one of my coworkers uh, had said something about Shaquille O'Neal wearing Reebok or whatever. And I said, oh, Shaq, Shaq wears Reebok? And they were like, uh, if you want to work here, you have to know stuff like that. Right. And there's no way that I knew stuff like that. Uh, and it was just a very different vibe. It was just very slow paced. You know, I'd write a story. Great. When is it going to appear? You know, six weeks later, seven weeks later. You know, it was it was I was used to the newspaper and, and I still love the daily newspaper. I write this. Boom. It's done. It's in tomorrow's paper. It's in Sunday's paper. Then I go on to the next thing. And it was just a very slow. Pace. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it led to some interesting experiences. Uh, so an interview with NBA veteran Andre Miller. Uh, going up to a hotel room with him one time, and uh, he, stood, he almost stood me up for the interview. It was a couple hours late. And I uh, walked into his hotel room with him, and there was a woman lying on his bed that he very much wasn't expecting to be there. Wow. Uh, and, yes. And uh, I believe, I don't know who was more shocked to see her, me or him. Right. Uh, we both looked at her. She was, she was dressed. It wasn't like she was naked or anything like that. Um, but we were both kind of shocked, and I, I think he sort of subtly told her, uh, come back in a few hours or whatever. And uh, yeah, we had a very uncomfortable interview after that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Slam was, look, I, I, it was just not for me. It was very much a bad fit. Um, but you know what? If, if leaving Slam didn't happen, I wouldn't have gotten the job in Glen Falls, which led to many other great things. So it was just it was just a bad trip from the beginning, and I really did not fit in that culture. And uh, I'm glad it was a relatively short time in my career. You know what's funny about Slam yeah. is I said this to Russ when I, I had Russ Banks and on early on this podcast. Yep, yep. And... I was wrong about, a lot of my instincts about Slam were wrong. Like at the time I was like, this is garbage, these guys aren't journalists, blah, 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 blah. And it's just a, you know, it's a total abomination of, in many, many ways, they were ahead of the curve. They totally understood the intersection of cultures. They 
you know, Bleacher, what Bleacher Report does now, a lot of what Bleacher Report does now is what Slam was doing 15 years ago. As far as the celebrity, <laughs> as far as fashion, they just were way ahead yeah. of it. They really were way ahead of it. You were a bad fit, but they were, yeah. they were right. They were right in what they were doing. No, you're right. And Lang Whitaker, Lang Whitaker, who works for, I think, NBA.com now, he was, he was one of the first guys to really bring it to the Internet and really said, look, we've got to have a, a regular Internet presence. And he built up SlamOnline.com into a really legitimate uh, one-stop shopping for, for NBA and college basketball news. I want to, I wanna, uh, last thing I want to do with you here is you, you – uh, you wrote a story in 2009 that I'd forgotten about, and then you uh, you emailed it to me a couple hours ago. To me, this is like, I mean, what do I know? But like, if 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 this had appeared in the 2009 Best American Sports Writing, it would have been a very well placed sort of thing. The story is wow. Uh, Sean shares a sad secret: uh, brother's death uh, inspires to land football player teammates. And your lead, I'm going to read, is uh, the truth chair was empty. Nobody seemed eager to fill it. Then 16-year-old Sean Willis tentatively raised his hand. It was the middle of August, and the DeLand High School football team was sitting in a dorm room in the small town of Lake Placid, a few hours south of here. Toward the end of the preseason camp that was supposed to foster team bonding, Coach Kevin Pettis asked his players to share something personal by sitting in the truth chair. Sean hardly knew most of these kids. He was only a junior varsity player in 2008. So he raised his hand and out tumbled a story he'd been living with for more than five years. A tale about a kid named Josh who used to sleep in the same room as Sean, a kid with incredibly long eyelashes that all the girls marveled at. They were the two middle kids of Brenda and Sean Willis of Daytona and the two who were most alike. Josh loved nothing more than football Scooby-Doo, his dad's macaroni and cheese, and a vanilla McFlurry shake from McDonald's. As the room in Lake Placid grew funeral parlor quiet, Sean told them more. He talked about Josh getting strangely sick in August 2001, and then the awful diagnostic brain tumor. It's a great freaking story. Like, really perfectly Thank told. You. The kid's probably, whatever, 15 years younger than you. You're, you're, you're talking with a young guy. Uh, how do you get him to open up like that? Well, first of all, thank you very much. That was nine, nine years ago now. Um, that was tremendous. That was sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. And I think I remember the week before that happened, the kid had had a big game. And I think I talked to the assistant coach maybe after the game about it. I said, oh, this kid's got a great story. And he, just, he didn't really tell me the whole thing, but he tipped me off said, if you can get him talking, you know, you'll have something. And I didn't know Sean Willis well. Like I said in the start, he was only on junior varsity the year before. I feel like this was maybe one of their bigger games. Uh, and I just sat down with him and I just sort of started talking and I feel like you know, this is not a this is not a place where a kid gets interviewed a hundred times a day. I feel like he hadn't really told the story of his brother a lot to to people. And I feel like he kind of even at his age wanted to talk about his brother a lot and and the details just keep pouring out and pouring out. And Jeff, you and I both know so many times you're just like scratching your head begging for a detail or something interesting and this kid just kept coming and coming and coming and it was like, Oh my god, that's my lead. No wait, that's my lead, no wait, that's my lead and there was just so many great details uh that came out and and it was it was almost like therapeutic for him. I feel like I feel like I was just listening, and, and one of the one of the many, one of the few times in my life I remember to just be quiet and get out of the way and let the subject talk. Um, one of my biggest flaws is I just don't know when to shut up sometimes in an interview. And he just really wanted. I feel like maybe we talked for an hour, hour and a half, which is supposed to be a fifteen minute interview. And I followed back up with them. I talked to his parents, and they couldn't believe that Sean had shared all of this when I started telling him some of the details he told me about. And quite frankly, it was one of the most rewarding stories that were written because it started out as it was just going to be a regular, you know, middle of the day, middle of the week profile of hundreds of that I've done in my career. But it, it turned into so much more because 
my subject was so willing to, to share and open up a vein. And, and we, we as journalists, we ask these people to trust us with their stories. I mean, we, we move on. We tell their story and then we go to something else. And it stays with them forever. I'm sure that Sean Willis' parents still have that story somewhere in there. I'm not saying that to puff myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, it's not because of me. It's because it was Sean talking about his brother in a way that was so meaningful and so emotional that it meant something to them. Um, 99% of the time, Jeff, we move on, go to the next story. But, you know, whether I wrote about a woman, I wrote a story about a woman whose kidney, who, who died and all of her organ donations saved so many lives and I tracked down some of those people whose lives had been saved thanks to her organ donations. And those are the kinds of stories that make the high school field hockey drudgery in the middle of October worth it. You know, those those stories that you get every so often in your career. And, and I'm so grateful to Sean Willis that, that he opened it up, opened, opened up to me and was willing to share such. So I, I wish I could say it was some brilliant reporting story by me, but I just feel like I was in the right place at the right time and maybe asked a couple of the right questions and, and he was willing and he wanted to, to tell the story of his brother. And uh, it, was, it was definitely one of my favorite stories I've ever written. You can tell Sean Willis was not a great player because the photo with the article on the jump. First, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful photo of him running the football. And then I realized it's actually him getting stiff-armed in the face by the running back. <laughs> he was good. He was a good player. I mean, he wasn't, you know, major college football star, but he was pretty good. He became a good player, so. I forgot you covered Ryan Lochte when you were in Daytona. Was he as big a... Oh, yeah. Was he as big a kind of douchebag as he seems to be now? Um, no, no. Ryan was, um, he was interesting, man. He was interesting. Very, very difficult to get on the phone. I feel like I would have, I'd have an easier time getting Barack Obama on the phone he was president than I would, uh, than I would uh, Lochte. Very, very difficult to get on the phone. A lot of drives back and forth to Gainesville where he never showed up for an interview or he gave me five minutes or whatever. Um, no, he wasn't, he wasn't what he, his, his rep has become. I mean, he, look, he was never going to be a rocket scientist. I mean, he, he was always what he was. And in high school, all the stories that people told about him were similar to what he is. Um, but he, he, he was never a bad guy. He was never someone who I thought would do what happened in Rio with, with the lion and all of that. I mean, he was just a, a goofy, he was Spicoli, Jeff. He was Spicoli from Fast Times Ridgemont High. I realize I've lost most of your young audience now by right. making that reference, but he was, he was Spicoli. He was just cool, you know? Uh, yeah, I won a 200 meter at the Olympics, you know? Great, cool, you know? Like he was just, very, very laid back. Thank God, as a journalist, there were so many other colorful characters around him, his teammates, his parents, you know, whatever, um, because Ryan was just very chill and mellow and uh, just didn't really care about the press or the media or, you know, he just wanted to swim and, and do his thing. So, so no, he wasn't a bad guy. I, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I wouldn't say he was a bad guy. I wouldn't even say that, that he was a douche. He was just very hard to pin down very hard to get to open up and uh, I'm fascinated that now it seems like he is starting to really open up and uh, in interviews and talk about what happened well uh, Lewis listen I appreciate your time very much you are uh, oh please at least I can do for someone who once dedicated a book to me I mean, oh yeah that on, is true about it. I, I don't feel qualified to uh, to be on with all the other guests that you've had uh, to be in the roster but uh I do appreciate it. It is always fun to think back on, on the journalism memory. So I do appreciate you uh, taking the time. I want to thank today's guest, Michael Lewis, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can visit Mike's website at michaeljlewis.wordpress.com and follow him on Twitter at michaeljlewis75. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is out on September 11th, but it's available for pre-order everywhere now. 
One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Music and also on Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the stellar MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.
I want to thank today's guest, Dana O'Neill, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Dana on Twitter at Dana O'Neill Writer and read her stuff on The Athletic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Just a reminder. And one can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Music and Google Play. Reviews are always appreciated. Music, again, is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks for joining me, and remember, keep writing.